In the name of the living God, who was and is and is to come. Amen. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion, through the dark, cold, and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise. In my end is my beginning. In my end is my beginning. Of course, the longer poem starts with, in my beginning, is my end. These lines from T.S. Eliot's East Coker evoke for me the space we find ourselves in on the first Sunday of Advent. The paradoxes of beginnings and endings, catastrophe and hope, dark mystery and uncovering, waiting and action, past and future and always now. It calls us deeper and wilder. It's a liminal space, a threshold. Always the gospel for this Sunday sets us in a sweeping historical and cosmological context. By genre, it is apocalyptic. The word literally means uncovering or revelation, but we often use it to mean a disastrous end and a vision of a radically changed future. Standing on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem in the last week of his life, Jesus speaks of crisis and catastrophe to come, but also offers reassurance and guidance to his bewildered disciples. We, of course, are hearing these events through the lens of Mark's own situation and the concerns of his community. Scholars think this gospel was written around 68 to 70 of the Common Era, which means that it was either during or just after the Jewish revolt against the Roman occupation and Rome's imperial retaliatory violence and the destruction of the temple were current realities for Mark's community. Mark's writing to people who have seen the end of their world, if not the end of the world, The sacred center of meaning, the heart of communal worship and identity is gone. The people are scattered by marauding armies. Mark's Jesus, speaking in the early part of the first century, addresses a community of believers living some 40 years later in Mark's construct with words that have continued to speak to the circumstances of many other faith communities in all the centuries since. In the earlier part of this chapter, Jesus tells the disciples what's coming. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famine, betrayal even by one's most intimate friends and kin, persecution, judicial corruption and abuse, false messiahs and fake news, refugees, fleeing urgently and in droves, including pregnant women and those with little children. And in the midst of this, says Jesus, the good news, the news of God's faithfulness and love, 
must be preached. It's a startlingly contemporary picture, isn't it? This is where our gospel starts. After that suffering, Jesus says, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. He speaks of an astronomical upheaval, the sun growing dark, the moon giving no light, and in the words of the spiritual, the stars begin to fall. Scholar and activist Ched Myers has a take on this that I find really helpful and was new to me as I was reading this week. He mentions that our word for disaster, disaster, comes from aster, the Greek word for star. It suggests just such a disruption in the normal way of the world. More important, the powers of heaven are not only astronomical bodies. In this system, they are forces that control and order the world both spiritually and politically. The falling stars herald the upending of the empire's rigid grip. The darkened sun and moon make space for a mystery not to be known by ordinary sight or sense. Myers goes on to say that the first place in the scriptures in which the natural world rebels against the established order is not in apocalyptic literature, but in the Exodus story, where heavenly bodies and waters and creatures come against Pharaoh. So there is a suggestion of liberation in the upheaval that Jesus is talking about, of hope for radical change that will bring justice, but there is also chaos and risk and hardship and suffering. The next verses are usually understood as pointing toward the return of Christ in glory at the end of the age. They will see the Son of Man, says Jesus, the Son of Man, the human one, coming in clouds with power and great glory. It's a quote borrowed from the book of Daniel. Myers, however, is among several commentators who understand this not as a reference to the end of history, but to the cross by which history will be changed. In Mark's gospel in particular, the crucifixion is the ultimate apocalypse. It's the revelation of God's power that changes everything. God's vulnerable power as love, in sharpest contrast to the crude domination of imperial power. Understood this way, Advent invites us to be surprised again and again by a God whose glory is seen in solidarity with the most marginalized and vulnerable people, who then are claimed and gathered and welcomed from across the globe, as the text says, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the end of heaven. We then move from the cosmic to grounding in the ordinary cycles of nature, as Jesus tells his disciples to pay attention. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. When it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus and the first disciples, of course, did know how to read the signs of the natural world. They were immersed in it. 
aware of seasons and seeds and harvests, cycles of rain, how the storms came up on the sea and how to navigate them, the care of animals and the songs of birds. The biblical world is animate. The trees clap their hands and the rocks cry out. There's a reciprocity and belonging that humans have with the rest of creation. Jesus tells so many stories set in the natural world in which creation is a great companion and teacher. Many of us, however, do not find it so simple to read the signs of the trees and the birds and the sky and the weather. Yet we are realizing that some of the familiar, reliable aspects of growing seasons and animal migration, temperature and rainfall, are changing. Changing because of human activity, and perilously so. The climate crisis is the most obvious apocalypse of our time, the end of the world as we have known it, calling urgently for us to wake up and act. There is a revelation here, a revelation about how we must change, how to care for the earth with love and reciprocity, to live with less, to share with our fellow humans in justice and peace. The question is whether we will indeed awaken to the signs and act on them. No one knows, Jesus says, when the end will come, and so we must not spend our energy trying to figure it out. Rather, in Meyer's words, we are to live urgently in our own critical historical moment. Live urgently, in full awareness of both the crises and the hopes of our time. Jesus then tells a parable that sums up how we are to live in Advent and maybe in all times as people of faith. The story tells of a man who goes on a long journey, leaving his slaves, each with their work to do. The doorkeeper, in particular, is to be vigilant, awake in the liminal space, the threshold, keeping watch all through the long darkness of the night. There's no telling when the master of the house will return, Jesus summarizes. So what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Keep awake. This is not the anxious tossing and turning, insomniac angst that some of us experience all too frequently. It does not mean that we are never literally to rest. Rather, we are called to a spiritual practice that writer Jan Richardson describes this way. She says, Jesus urges us toward a kind of awareness in which whatever we are doing, even in resting and sleeping, some part of us remains open, stays alert, and pays attention to what is unfolding, reflecting on what it means. Because Advent begins in the dark, we have to cultivate our non-dominant ways of knowing, our senses other than sight. We must learn to attend to what is beginning, growing, breathing, moving tenderly in the dark. Advent begins with apocalypse in all senses of the word. It reminds us that the world is always ending. It turns us to witness and grieve 
and lament the catastrophes of war and climate, racism and genocide, of pandemics, the loss of culture and sacred center. It honors, too, the more personal endings, deaths and illness, betrayals, profound changes in our self-understanding, and moments when it seems the world we have known is gone. In our times, it's not hard to find the endings and the losses. They're legion. The challenge is rather to let ourselves really experience the grief of our world and see what we might prefer to ignore, particularly about our own complicity in the sufferings of others, to allow ourselves to cry out and lament to God. This is where we begin our watching, aware of absence and filled with longing. This is also where God shows up amid the shadows, the shards, and the shock. Sometimes, oftentimes, God's coming is not exactly like we expect. That's why it's so important to stay awake. We must be quiet enough and honest enough to receive the revelation that comes. God will not abandon us, even though the watch may be long. To what are we called to stay awake in Advent? To our bone-deep, soul-deep need for God. To our longing for a world of justice and peace, our yearning for God's dream of the healing of creation and the restoration of what is lost and broken. We must stay awake to grief, our own and the grief that others carry, our ancestors, our neighbors, and strangers, so that it softens our hearts and keeps breaking them open. We awaken to joy as well, to the ordinary wonder, to sustenance and the renewing of the world, to the gift of love and the moments of heart-stopping delight in being alive. In these days, we are surely called to awaken urgently to the natural world, to waters and land and trees and birds and animals, their cries, their travails, their wisdom. We're called to wake up to the truth of our own lives and hearts, complex and imperfect and beloved of God. Most of all, we are to stay awake, to watch and pay attention to the myriad, mysterious, unexpected ways that God comes to us. The scholar Grace Jisun Kim says that we are not just awaiting an infinitely loving God, we are also being awaited by God. What might God be waiting on us to do? As we live that question, our particular ways of participating in the healing of God's world become clear. Our actions welcome and further the incarnation, God with us, and we commit to being with God and with our neighbors. In this way, Advent awakens hope even in the midst of apocalypse. And so I want to close with a poem about hope, not grand and oriented towards a radically changed future, 
but born out of paying careful attention to ordinary daily grace. It's by Laura Martin. She says, I will not tell you to have hope in the future. I say have hope right now. Right now, someone is sweeping the street singing. Someone is folding laundry, sewing a button on, holding out a hand for another to step down more easily. Right now, someone is buying flowers to give them all away, playing piano in the darkening day, baking bread. Someone is caring for a dog, smoothing a child's forehead, setting down food for a cat. Right now, someone is working for an end to war, for a beginning to a song, for the trees in a forest, for the lights to stay on, for the sun to power a school, for someone cold to be warmed, for someone sick to be healed, for this brilliant earth. It is enough to have hope right now. Amen.